Welcome to The Edge of the Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we'll be talking about the Supreme Court's shadow docket, and we're joined remotely by one of the nation's top experts on the topic. Steve Vladek is a professor of law at the University of Texas Law School. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And I, I gave a very quick intro, but you're also the host of uh, National Security Law Podcast. It's true, with the, with the exceptionally clever title, The National Security Law Podcast. <laughs> I have a podcast. Um, I have a weekly Supreme Court newsletter on Substack called One First. Um, and, you know, my day job of actually trying to teach law to law students. Are you still contributing for CNN or? Yeah, no, that's that's sort of an, an ever present thing. I am. Um, but I, I'm, I'm a weird CNN contributor in that my work is principally behind the scenes. Um, so, you know, when the Supreme Court does something newsworthy, which these days seems like it's all the time. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a whole someone calls you try to yeah, figure out what's going on. Well, as I was reviewing the topics that you write on, I'd love to talk to you about a number of things. But today we're talking about something that's become ever more present uh, when, for viewers of the Supreme Court at least, which is the shadow docket. And I think for many, you have become uniquely associated with the shadow docket. Why is that? I guess I'm probably one of the more visible public critics of what the court has been doing uh, on the shadow docket for the last five or six years. It's not my term, actually. It was uh, Will Bode, who's a common law professor at the University of Chicago, who used it first to refer to the Supreme Court in 2015. But I guess I sort of borrowed it from Will and have tried to document all of the interesting and, to my mind, problematic things that the court's been using it for in the last you know, six, seven years. Yeah, and so I want to talk a bit about your your critiques and and how it's changing. Well, also maybe we can also hear your thoughts on on the defense, I suppose, of the use of these yeah. unusual powers. But let's start with a definition. Since it's not a defined term in the Constitution, I suppose it's a relatively <laughs> new term. What does it mean? Yeah, I mean, so I use Will's definition, which is basically um, an umbrella term that covers just about everything that the Supreme Court does other than the fancy, you know, lengthy opinions that the justices hand down at the end of each term you know, that we often call the merits docket. So the merits docket, you might get 65 decisions each year. Some of them are really high profile, like the Dobbs abortion case or the Bruin Second Amendment ruling. Some of those less high profile, but perhaps no less important. And there's a tendency, I think, on the part of media on the part of lawyers, law professors, everybody, to sort of be distracted by the merits docket as the gravamen of what the Supreme Court does. And Will's insight, you know, about eight years ago, which I've sort of picked up on and run with, is that we ignore the rest of the court's output at our peril. That it's not as accessible, right, that the most of what happens on the shadow docket are these unsigned, unexplained orders. Many of those orders are entirely anodyne and no one cares about except maybe the lawyers working on the cases, but not all of them. And so, you know, the sort of the, the insight here is that there's a lot the Supreme Court does through these unsigned, unexplained orders that actually has a pretty big impact and that we don't talk about nearly as much as the big, fancy merits decisions that we get each year. I think that your characterization of how we perceive the court is spot on. I mean, we've all been thinking of the merits side of the house. But here, these cases, uh, the shadow docket can cover some of the most high profile and controversial issues of our time. 
Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite examples, just before we even get into like the last couple of years, is same-sex marriage. So, you know, most folks think that the Supreme Court legalized on a nationwide basis same-sex marriage in June of 2015 um, in the Obergefell versus Hodges decision. It actually turns out that the Obergefell decision legalized same-sex marriage in fewer states than a series of orders the court had issued over the preceding 18 months. And that indeed, by the time Obergefell is decided, the court had actually legalized same-sex marriage um, in 18 states, which on top of the 19 that did it themselves, meant that all that the Supreme Court did in Obergefell is legalized in 13 states. That's, I think, a pretty sort of real-world example of how these orders can have very real effects, how simply denying certiorari, which is the, you know, annoyingly Latin term for just, you know, refusing to hear an appeal, can sometimes actually mean that overnight, a practice that was unlawful for decades, forever, right, is now lawful. And that can be just as big a deal to folks on the ground as a 75-page decision in which, you know, Justice X explains why there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. I don't know if you're a sort of a same-sex couple in Utah, if you care more about the rationale or just the reality. And I think that's where we start to see more awareness of how orders can sometimes be just as impactful as opinions. Steve, another thing you mentioned that I just want to hammer home that many of us forget is how few cases the court actually hears. Did you say, you know, we're talking only in the in the 60s in a year? Yes. And even that, I think Joel is increasingly optimistic. Um, so, you know, the Supreme Court over the last three terms, so, you know, from the beginning of COVID to the present, hasn't even gotten to 60. Um, it was 53 during the October 2019 term. It was 56 during the October 2020 term. It was 58 last term. You know, Joel, those are numbers that we haven't seen since the Civil War, right? That the, the Supreme Court for much of the 20th century was hearing 150 cases a year, 200 cases. And Steve, I'm assuming that's not because the, the number of legal cases in the country have gone down since the Civil War. No, um, right? I mean, it, it, is, it, is, it is both an absolute drop and an even higher percentage drop, uh, right? Reflective of broader dockets. And part of that is also part of the same story, which is that the Supreme Court has to some degree with Congress's blessing and to some degree all by itself, claimed ever more discretion over its docket and over deciding which cases it's going to hear and even which questions it's going to decide within the cases it chooses to hear. And Joel, all of that happens on the shadow docket. Like all of that behind the scenes decision making, are we going to take up this case? Are we going to hear all of it? Are we just going to hear some of it? Like that's all stuff that maybe a small cohort of you know, veteran Supreme Court reporters and Supreme Court practitioners can decipher from the cryptic orders that the justices hand down, but that I think is sort of at least functionally inaccessible, right, to the public at large. And I think that's one of the problems when those orders start to produce ever more and ever broader substantive effects. Are you saying that the court's decision not to hear a case would be part of the shadow docket? Sure. I mean, I think and I, I think the same-sex marriage cases are a really good example of that. I mean, you mentioned my book that's coming out, you know, in May. I mean, chapter the, the first two chapters actually aren't about any of these recent, you know, emergency application controversies that I know we're going to talk about. Um, they're actually about certiorari and how, you know, for the first hundred and, gosh, one years of its history, the Supreme Court had no discretion over its docket. If it had a case, it had to hear it, it had to decide it how it gradually claims discretion starting in 1891, 
really the big moment's 1925, then the last sort of the icing on the cake is 1988, and how it's through that discretion, Joel, that the court actually claims power. Because a court that can pick and choose the cases it's going to hear and the issues it's going to decide within those cases is a court that really can set its own agenda um, in ways that give the court the ability to say, you know, we want to do this, but not that. Um, in a way that I think in, is empowering, that, that is part and parcel of why the Supreme Court has become such a dominant institution, for better or for worse, in the lives of so many of us. Yeah, this was something that you write about in your book. The Supreme Court had certain marching orders from Congress that have gone away even as recently as the 80s. What, what was the change in the 80s? I think it'll help to take one step back. So the, until 1891, every appeal the Supreme Court could hear it had to hear. In 1891, Congress briefly introduces, in a very small category of cases, this idea of certiorari, of discretion, um, to not hear an appeal if you don't want to, where if you choose not to hear the appeal, your decision to not hear the case will not be given substantive uh, 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 value. Um, 1925 is when Congress really expands that, so that after 1925, most appeals from lower federal courts became discretionary where it was actually the rare appeal from a lower federal court that the Supreme Court had to hear. But Joel, after 1925, it was still the case that the court had to hear appeals from state courts. And the, the, and the shift in 1988 is to say, no, even state courts now are discretionary as well. So that today, there's the only class of cases that's left that the Supreme Court has to hear today is this really obscure subset of cases coming from special so-called three-judge district courts, which are, I mean, just to sort of peel through four different statutes, just certain campaign finance cases um, and certain congressional reapportionment cases, and that's it. And everything else, the court has discretion whether or not to take up. Wow. Well, I mean, I've heard in some of the, I suppose, defense of the shadow docket arguments, kind of a conflation between the shadow docket and the emergency uh, docket or emergency orders. Uh, maybe you could contrast that a little bit. So is that just a subset of the shadow docket? Absolutely. Um, so so I think this is actually a common conflation, right, by critics who think that though people like me, when we use the term shadow docket, they think we're just talking about emergency orders. So I think emergency orders are where most of the recent developments have happened um, and where the sort of the recent behavior by the court has departed in some pretty significant ways from its historical you know, uh, predecessors. But no, properly understood, the shadow docket is everything that the court does through unsigned, unexplained orders. That includes emergency applications, Joel, but it's not limited to that. And it also includes granting or denying certiorari. Um, it includes anodyne things like the timing of the court's docket, like when it chooses to hear cases. Just one example of that, right? Like sometimes the, the court might uh, hold off on granting certiorari in a case, so that they pass the cutoff from one term to the next to push a case over to the next term. Um, that can have pretty big effects if a policy is hanging in the balance, right, during the interim. I guess the, the, the large point is the emergency docket is where most of the recent controversy has been, but the shadow docket as a whole really reflects some of the same pathologies about unsigned, unexplained orders of the Supreme Court that affect all of us directly. And that's never been limited to emergency applications. Steve, we spoke about how the shadow docket is nothing new, but the volume or perhaps the uses of it, that has changed. Yeah, so I think the, the 
I, I mentioned the distinction between sort of history and recent events. So any appeals court, Joel, is going to have emergencies. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. And you can look back at the Supreme Court's history and find some scattershot examples of high-profile emergency applications. Um, Sacco and Vanzetti, when they were executed by Massachusetts in the late 1920s, you know, their lawyers spent the better part of a weekend trying to chase down three different justices um, for emergency relief. Julius Neffel Rosenberg, um, right? The, the famous traitors. That's right. My, my, fam- my favorite example, um, Lyndon Baines Johnson, right? He couldn't have stolen the 1948 Texas Democratic Senate primary without an emergency stay from Hugo Black. Oh, wow. You know, there are lots of sort of scattershot examples um, historically. What has changed in the last five or six years is how often the court is intervening in this context. Instead of once or twice every couple of years, it's like 20 to 22 times a term. How it's intervening. So instead of, you know, one stay that affects one person, now we're having interventions that either allow or block state or nationwide policies. The court is treating these orders as precedential, even when they're not explained, which is also a new development. So yelling at lower courts that failed to read the tea leaves from some of these unsigned, unexplained interventions. And Joel, and I think perhaps most problematically, intervening inconsistently, where it's not like it's always intervening for the federal government or always intervening in favor of particular types of claims, but rather where, unfortunately, the best predictor of how the court's going to rule is the partisan valence of the dispute. And all of these things, you know, by themselves, none of these are brand new taken together, right? It's the confluence that I think is part of why this has become such an important and troubling piece of the Supreme Court's work and why I think it's so important that, you know, folks other than the nerdy Supreme Court watchers actually have some sense of what's happening. Well, I know I'm talking to a a nerdy Supreme Court watcher. And as you mentioned up top, probably the most vocal critic of of the shadow docket or the use of the shadow docket. But what are you hearing when you speak to, to judges or when you speak to appellate lawyers? Are they feeling a level of confusion that is being generated by this? So, you know, it's interesting. There really is a divide. And, and it is unfortunately a divide that largely tracks partisan lines. Right. I, I think there is a sense on the part of judges, especially that what the Supreme Court is doing is problematic. Right. I mean, because if you're a lower court judge, you know, what you want from the Supreme Court is you want guidance. Um, right. You you accept that that if they disagree with you, they win. Like that's the nature of the job. Um, but when you get a ruling like there's one from February 2021 called Gateway City Church versus Newsom, where the court reaches out to block some of California's covid restrictions. And the court in this cryptic order that has no reasoning says the Ninth Circuit's decision was clearly erroneous um, right, because the Ninth Circuit failed to account for our ruling in a case called South Bay 2. Well, Joel, in South Bay 2, there was no majority opinion, right? And so, so here you have the Supreme Court chastising the Ninth Circuit for failing to appropriately divine the tea leaves, right, from a decision that didn't have a majority opinion with, with actual rationale in it. So I, I think part of the problem is that folks assume that this is an attack on the conservatives as such, right? Like, you know, conservatives bad, progressives good. And it's not. Like, I, my, my objection is not to the bottom lines that the court is reaching in all of these emergency orders. It's to the sort of the defiance of norms of, you know, explaining the rationale, of providing guidance, of being consistent, of honoring 
you know, procedural and jurisdictional limits on the court's authority. And you can find, if you look at all of these orders in the aggregate, Joel, you see such a remarkable pattern of sort of the Supreme Court just changing all kinds of things on the ground, changing policies left and right, while saying very, very little to explain what it's doing or to provide some countervailing narrative other than we're ruling for Republicans and we're ruling against Democrats. And it's not as though if they wrote more or if they explained their opinion better that it would go the other way. It's not as though the argument for more transparency would change the outcome. I mean, if anything, I would I would think that if there are, you know, satisfying analytical rationales for the bottom lines the court is reaching in these cases, it's actually better for those who like those rationales for the court to articulate them uh, and for the court to actually write them down and hardwire them into our jurisprudence um, versus these sort of scattershot orders that leave us, you know, really guessing Joel, not just as to what the court has ruled, sometimes as to who even did it. This is fascinating to me. So it's sometimes not listed. Who are the who are the justices who who came down in favor? So by norm, right, and by tradition, the court does not um, have an author for any order, and it does not list how all the justices voted. The only way we ever know is if a justice chooses to publicly note a concurrence or a dissent, and so it is possible that we'll know that it was five to four because we'll see four justices publicly noting their dissent. And, you know, the math there is not that hard. Even for lawyers. Right. But short, even if you see three justices publicly noting a dissent, we don't know that it's six to three. Uh, we don't know that it's seven to two. And we don't know where the other justices are. I mean, my, my favorite example of this is there's an Alabama death penalty case from February 2021 where we know where the court stays in execution in Alabama. Um, and we know who four of the justices in the majority are because they write a concurrence. So we know that Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Barrett were four of the justices who voted for this stay. We know Thomas, the Chief Justice, and Gorsuch were uh, Thomas, the Chief Justice, and Kavanaugh were in dissent. We don't know where Gorsuch or Alito were, right? So you've narrowed it down to two. We, you narrowed it down to two, but like, frankly, Joel, I'd be fat. Like, which one of those was it? Both of them? Right. Was it Gorsuch, but not Alito? Was it Alito, but not Gorsuch? Um, like those would be relatively useful things to know. And yet there's no understanding that that's what the court should tell us. As a, a litigator and you've I believe you've argued cases before the Supreme Court. Is that right? Yep. Three of them. Ne the, the next the, ne the, the next one I win will be the first. The next one you win will be the first. OK, well, I, I hope your, your streak uh, changes, but Am I right that when you're preparing, you're also thinking on a very by judge way? You know, what are the things that Alito cares the most about? What are the things that Justice Thomas cares the most about? So I can craft an argument that may find uh, find actual ground. Absolutely. You're always trying to figure out how to count to five. Um, and, you know, on the shadow, one of the things that you can't do on the shadow docket is count, um, which, you know, forget how, how that makes life harder for litigators. I mean, if, again, it's back to the lower court judges. Joel, imagine you're a state official, you're a governor, or you're a federal government lawyer, and you're trying to figure out, you know, what's left for us? What can we do in response to this decision? And you don't know why the court ruled the way it did, and you don't know which justices ruled the way that they did, right? Wholly apart from the sort of other problems with this kind of decision making, that's no way to run a railroad. 
um, because that just creates, you know, it's not just that it makes life harder on the ground. It's that it sort of sacrifices exactly what makes judicial decision making different from all other uh, decision making. What makes the Supreme Court a court is that it explains its decisions through principled legal analysis. Um, And if it's just saying, oh, this policy up, that policy down, right, then the charges that it's simply acting as a as a, a lever of partisan political power become, I think, a lot more persuasive. Well, I want to talk through some of the critiques that you have of the shadow docket and and also some of the the defenses um, that that you've seen by others uh, a little bit later. But I guess before we get there, maybe we could talk through a couple of recent contentious and controversial cases that have been decided on the shadow docket because there's been a number of very important ones. Indeed. Um, so you know the the as we're recording this, the most recent you know, contentious shadow docket case um, involves the so-called Title 42 policy. This is this, you know, uh, COVID era uh, immigration policy that basically allows the government to deny even eligibility for asylum to folks who appear at the southern border. This is not the remain in Mexico. This is the the asylum portion of the of the law of the COVID stuff. Right. So so it's called Title 42 because the relevant underlying authority is actually uh, the, the Public Health Service Act. Right. Title 42, part of Title 42 of the U.S. Code. So Title 42, Joel, was this very controversial Trump era immigration policy. Um, and it was controversial because the sort of the, the critics of it argue that it was pretextual, that, you know, no, the, the point was not to prevent covid positive immigrants from coming into the country. The point was just to prevent immigration. Right. And to sort of deny asylum to those who would otherwise be eligible to seek it, whatever the merits of that debate. Um, right. It's now 2023. Right. We're, we're we're three years past the beginning of covid. I think there's a widespread sense that the immediate public health emergency has ended. The Biden administration has said, right, it's going to rescind the emergency on May 11th. So there was a, a permanent injunction by a federal district court against the Title 42 policy, basically sort of saying it's time for it to end that was supposed to go into effect um, on December 23rd. And 19 red states, led at least alphabetically by Arizona, um, went to the Supreme Court and said, we want you to stop this injunction from going into effect. We want you to keep Title 42 as a policy, you know, in force, at least for now, not because we want you to uphold the policy, but because we want you to let us, these 19 red states, go to the lower courts and defend it, right? So we want we want to kick this can down the road and we want your help in kicking it. Um, and, you know, the Supreme Court on December 27th issued a five to four. We know it's five, four because there were four dissenters, um, right? Issued a five, four ruling um, granting the stay, right? Keeping Title 42 in effect, Joel with no rationale, with no explanation of why they were doing it. And there's a really, really good dissent by Justice Gorsuch, Um, who joined the three more liberal justices, uh, right, Justices uh, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson. And Gorsuch's dissent says, what the heck are we doing here, right? He says, you know, um, the border might be an emergency, but it's not the COVID emergency. Um, And that this is just a pretextual use of, you know, of this kind of authority. And Joel, this is what we're seeing over and over again, where the court with no explanation is issuing an order that in this case, is going to keep Title 42, this policy, in effect for five months, six months, a year, longer than it otherwise would have been, right, with no sort of legal rationale, with no explanation of why that's justified by the relevant legal authorities. 
Um, that's just the most recent example. But if you multiply that by, you know, 20 per term, that's what we're seeing over and over again on the shadow docket. Another of the controversial cases, and I think one where you testified before Congress involved Texas's abortion law, um, was this SB8? Maybe you could walk us through that one as well. Yeah. So, you know, this was before Dobbs, right? So while, while Roe was still on the books um, and while there was still a federal constitutional right to, to a pre-viability abortion. So Texas passes this law. Um, it's called the Texas Heartbeat Act, but I think most folks shorthand it to SB8. Um, and the law, it's two different things, Joel, right? Substantively, it's a ban on all abortions in Texas after the sixth week of pregnancy. Um, six weeks, by the way, a point at which many people don't even know they're pregnant. Um, right. But it's also a series of procedural contrivances to make it very hard to challenge the substance of the six week abortion ban. And there was this concerted effort to prevent that law from going into effect because for you know some complicated reasons, had that law gone into effect, it really would have made it impossible for abortion providers to continue providing services in Texas. So they go to the Supreme Court and they say, hey, Supreme Court, like you have blocked over and over again, all of these state laws on religious liberty grounds, um, right, during the COVID pandemic, you should block this law, which is interfering with a no less established right, the right to abortion, while the procedural stuff is sorted out, while we fight over whether Texas is allowed to manipulate the litigation process this way. Um, and the Supreme Court, by a five to four vote, said no. Um, they didn't say much more than no, um, right? There's a, a, a long paragraph that basically alludes to some, you know, sort of procedural questions that the court would have to answer in order to block the law, but doesn't actually resolve them. Um, and there are some pretty sharp dissents, not just from the more liberal justices, but this time from Chief Justice Roberts, right? No, no fan of abortion rights who says, you know, this is not how we're supposed to act. We're not supposed to let states frustrate constitutional rights. And Joel, I think what, what's so remarkable about the SB8 case is had that been just in a vacuum, the only emergency application the Supreme Court had received over some fixed time period, right? Maybe you could justify the court's non-intervention on the ground that, you know, just it's not, it's not what we do, um, right? This is not the kind of relief we grant. But this comes right on the heels of the court having just granted six different emergency injunctions against other states' laws in contexts where there were similar procedural questions, but where the majority was just convinced that the religious liberty claims in the case were too important um, to sort of to, to let fall by the wayside. And Joel, it's the, it's the exact same justices in the majority. Well, this could have been Alito tipping his hand that, uh, you know, he didn't see abortion as actually constitutionally protected, so it wasn't worth reviewing. That's it. But Joe, but that's exactly the point, right? Which is here we had the Supreme Court nine months before Dobbs um, effectively, but not formally rendering Roe a dead letter um, in the nation's second largest state, um, right? That, you know, it, it, it became impossible overnight to get an abortion in Texas. And that was long before the Supreme Court said you no longer have a right to it. That to me is like as powerful a crystallization of how the shadow docket affects all of us and how the Supreme Court's orders on the shadow docket can be just as momentous as their fancy signed opinions, you know, even in cases like Dobbs. I wanted to talk a bit more about the structure of these decisions, what, what a shadow docket decision could be. You've mentioned a couple of ways. One could be, you know, refusing cert or granting it or 
refusing an injunction or providing an injunction, but there's been some some innovations or some perhaps new new ways of of Supreme Courts ordering things. Uh, maybe you could you could explain. Yeah, I mean, so you know, the the typical when we're talking about like emergency applications, right? The typical thing that a party's asking the court to do is either to freeze the effect of a lower court decision. Or if the lower court hasn't done anything to freeze, to directly reach out and block a government actor, right, through an injunction. Um, what we're seeing the court do more and more is actually combine some of these forms of relief in ways that will both wipe away a lower court decision um, and, right, affect the government actors directly. So the, the court has something called uh, a GVR. It's, just, it's, a, it's an initialism. It just stands for Grant, Vacate, and Remand. And the idea is that when the court issues a GVR, like let's say the court has just decided a major Fourth Amendment case, and there are a whole bunch of other cases in the pipeline where this new Fourth Amendment analysis might be relevant. Um, so the court's going to issue, a, instead of taking each of these cases one by one, the court just sends them all back to the lower courts. Hey, lower courts, we just said something important. Go back, look at what we said, see if you want to come out the same way. Start over. Right. Um, that's not new. That's not controversial. Um, the court has started issuing GVRs of emergency application rulings um, in a way that we haven't seen before, where the court says, hey, we just issued this emergency injunction, mind you, with no explanation, right? We're going to wipe away these lower court decisions refusing to enjoin other state laws and tell the lower court to reconsider that in light of our, you know, non-explained <laughs> recent decision. Uh, that's a new one. We're seeing the court, Joel, jump over the courts of appeals in the federal courts a lot more than ever before. There's something called certiorari before judgment. This is basically a way for the Supreme Court to take an appeal directly from a federal district court. Um, historically, is that court, something that you have to a apply for or is it the Supreme Court saying, hey, uh, you know, district court or appellate court, step aside. This is this is for the big boys. A uh, little bit of both, right? So so the, the court can't reach out and sort of grant an application no one's asked. But like you might ask for one thing and the court will ask for something else. So that's actually a perfect segue to what the court's been doing on the shadow docket. So there were a series of cases in 2021 and 2022 where a litigant would say, hey, Supreme Court, we want emergency relief. We want you to block um, this state COVID policy. And the Supreme Court said, well, we're not going to block the state COVID policy but we are going to grant cert before judgment. Um, so we're going to grant your appeal, right? Um, we're going to reverse the district court's order or vacate it. And we're going to send the whole case back to the district court for further consideration in light of that thing we didn't say last week, right? So, so basically the court is sort of wiping away a lower court decision, telling the lower court to try again, right? And telling it to try again in light of a decision the Supreme Court handed down in which it provided no rationale where, Joel, the obvious subtext is, look, we just blocked that state's law. Shouldn't you think again about your decision to not block this state's law? Um, and so it allows the court to basically, you know, sort of nudge the lower courts without actually expending capital, without actually having to do it themselves. Um, and that's been something that we've seen much more of on the shadow docket in the last couple of terms than really at any prior point in the court's history. You've spoken a couple of times in our conversation and in, in, in your book and in your writings, you talk about the precedential value of shadow docket orders. But is that settled? I mean, are we are we 
to interpret shadow docket orders as precedent, or is that still up in the air? Um, we don't know. <laughs> um, to make a long story short, so the court formally continues to insist that unsigned, unexplained orders carry no precedential value. Um, and yet we can point to, and the book points to, five or six instances where the court in some of these COVID cases especially treats unsigned, unexplained orders as precedents, um, either because it's telling lower courts to reconsider their decision in light of this unsigned, unexplained order, or in one case, we talked about Gateway City Church, where it says the Ninth Circuit's decision not to follow our order was clearly erroneous, right? There's a case from April 2021 called Tandon versus Newsom, where the court says, this is the fifth time we've dealt with the Ninth Circuit in a COVID case. The other four didn't have majority opinions. So, you know, I, I think, I don't mean to be too critical, but I think the court is kind of talking out of both sides of its mouth a bit when it comes to precedent, where formally it's still the case that these are not precedential, but we can point to examples where the court is clearly acting as if they are. So it's not precedent, but hey guys, pay attention. If we're doing something- It's not precedent, but you ignore it at your peril. Well, why don't we talk a bit about the arguments in favor uh, or in defense of, of the shadow docket of late. And then you know we, we can talk about some of the kind of core critiques that you have. But I'd like to start with you know some defense, um, especially since we we're joined by uh, America's most vocal critic. Uh, what would you say you hear when you have a debate with another professor, or when you listen to Justice Alito defend the actions of the court? What are the strongest, I suppose, um, arguments that you hear, or, or what are the arguments that you hear? I don't I don't need you to put your weight behind. No, no, it's okay. I mean, there are some good arguments. So. Uh... I think, let's say, in, in the abstract, what, what most of the defenses of the shadow docket have in common is that they pick out a subset of the court's cases and defend them, um, right? Where it's like, in this slice of cases, you could defend the court's behavior this way, or in this slice of cases, you could defend the court's behavior this way. So let me give you an example, right? There are there are a ton of uh, the, the, the time period where the court's interventions really start to accelerate is early in the Trump administration where we see the Supreme Court repeatedly granting emergency relief to put back into effect Trump policies that lower courts had blocked. So one defense is that lower courts in those cases were behaving badly, that lower courts, whether for political reasons or for you know ideological reasons, were being unduly critical and hostile toward President Trump and his policies, and that the Supreme Court's unprecedented interventions were justified as a sort of response to the judicial resistance, right? So that's a good example where like, yes, as applied to a sliver of cases, it makes some sense, but that narrative one doesn't account for all of the other cases where the courts intervene that have nothing to do with Trump, right? And two, even then, one would think, Joel, that if there were a pattern that the justices had identified, it would behoove them to articulate it. And to explain, hey, lower courts, here's what you're doing that we disagree with. Stop doing it. As opposed to just these unsigned, unexplained orders where they hope that the message will be received. Ditto, right, another argument is that the Supreme Court is simply responding to external pressures, such as the rise of nationwide injunctions, uh, right? We have seen this uptick in federal courts issuing injunctions against federal policies that end up having effects on a nationwide basis. Um, but of course, again, right, one, 
the court's not saying that's what this is about. And two, there's this remarkable flip where the court is very hostile to nationwide injunctions until January 20th, 2021. I wonder what happened then. And, right. And then, you know, as soon as Biden comes to office, the justices who had spent the prior four years being hostile to nationwide injunctions are all of a sudden willing to allow them to persist. So, you know, there are really good arguments to defend any one or even any sort of small subset of what's happening on the shadow docket. This is why I think the book is so important, because what the book tries to do is it tries to actually put the whole thing in context, not just like all of the court's recent behavior on the shadow docket, but also historically compared to what the court did in prior generations, right, when it was beset with emergency applications. And I think that's when you really develop an appreciation for how it's the aggregation, it's the accumulation that shows you just what is so qualitatively different about what the current court's doing, because there's no one explanation, Joel, that survives the data set. Um, and that sort of maps onto the, the, the pattern as a whole. Well, I'll play devil's advocate a little bit, if you don't mind, and, uh, and fire a couple of questions at you. Steve, why is this not just a rare example of innovation at the high court? Don't we want the Supreme Court to think about how to, to make their impact more efficiently? Yes. Um, efficiency is good. Um, but efficiency, I, I think, also requires consistency. And so, you know, the even if you so. So, yes, another argument you hear about why this is OK is, you know, these are justices who know what they want the bottom line to be. And aren't we better off if they just reach the bottom line faster? Um, right. To which my response is twofold. One, there are some respects in which the relevant statutes don't allow them to reach the bottom line faster. But two, then tell us what the bottom line is, right? As opposed to sort of leaving us to guess. And it also turns out, I mean, Joel, there is a sense out there that the court is simply front-loading merit decisions so that it's deciding at time one what it would otherwise decide at time four. That turns out not to be true. Um, so in the cases that actually start on the shadow docket and come back on the merits docket, the record is actually mixed. You mentioned earlier MPP, the Remain in Mexico program. It's a great example, right? So the this was another Trump-era immigration policy. The Biden administration tried to rescind it and was blocked by a federal judge in Texas who issued a nationwide injunction against the rescission of the policy, so basically keeping the policy alive. The Biden administration goes to the Supreme Court for a stay. The Supreme Court denies the stay over three dissents from the three more liberal justices. But Joel, on the merits, at the end of the next term, the court sides with the Biden administration five to four. Um, right? Ditto SB8, the SB8 case. The emergency ruling was five to four on the ground that the plaintiffs had named no proper defendants. Well, two and a half months later, an eight to one court says actually four of the defendants were proper defendants. So, right, you know, it, this to me is sort of, and, and, and other examples abound where, you know, what the court does at time one is not necessarily predictive of what it's going to do at time four, which I think pours further cold water on the idea that, like, this is just all about, you know, getting the merits out of the way earlier. Okay, here's another, another potential uh, defense or argument. You mentioned one of the criticisms being that there's just not the transparency that we see in a merits uh, in a merits case. We don't even know who's deciding what. Could there be an argument that that's great, that this might 
enable the justices to be a little bit less polemic or to be a little more likely to uh, to make compromise where they might not then have to suffer punishment uh, with their more radical base? Um, so sure, um, I, I think that there is something to be said <clears throat> for anonymity in this context. Um, but the, the, the costs, I think, are actually even more profound, which is that that very defense also means justices don't have to be consistent. Um, right. That that I can if I don't have to sign my name, if I don't have to endorse a rationale, I can vote one way in case one and vote totally a different way in case two and not be called out for my inconsistency. Right. Because I haven't I'm not be you don't know why I voted the way I did. So, you know, that's, I think, problem number one. Problem number two is, yes, but then let's make the whole court anonymous. Um, right. There's a professor at Vanderbilt Law School, Susanna Sherry. Um, who has a great law review article from a couple of years ago called The Kardashian Court, um, where she actually, she proposes that the court should stop having any of the opinions be signed, um, right? Because otherwise we're sort of endorsing this. Oh, I was going to say, Steve, connect the dots for me. What's the Kardashian Court? The Kardashian Court is what we have now. Yes. And they want to make it more. She's writing against the Kardashian Court. So, you know, I, I think that the, the point, I mean, Joel, the, not to sort of get too far down a, a reality TV rabbit hole, um, but I do think the point is is the same, which is why would that be an important value on the shadow docket, but not the merits docket? If it's good for the goose, why isn't it good for the gander? This podcast is brought to you by Talks on Law, a website that's working to help increase our understanding of the law through free videos with trusted experts. Talks on Law brings together some of the brightest minds out there to have them explain and answer legal questions in video format so that we can all better understand the laws that govern our lives. Visit TalksOnLaw.com to learn more. Well, while we're talking of defense, I think we should touch on Justice Alito. Uh, I, I suppose he's made the most high profile defense, probably because it's there's not much higher profile than being an actual member of the court. Uh, what was Justice Alito's thrust? Yeah, so this was, you know, one of the things that the SBA decision in September 2021 really did is it brought into public scrutiny what had largely been a nerdy academic conversation to that point. Um, and it really revved up public criticism of the shadow docket. You know, Adam Serwer wrote this very sharply critical piece um, I think the title is something like five justices did this because they can. Um, and I think that's what impelled Justice Alito to respond. So he gives a speech at Notre Dame Law School at the very end of September 2021. And, you know, I thought it was helpful that he tried publicly to address this. Um, but Joel, he he framed the conversation in such a stilted way, right? So so he talks about how, like, he, he, he identified what he called the 10 criticisms of the shadow docket. And like four of them are not actually criticisms. I don't know where he got them from. Uh, and the others, he sort of miscolored. So he said, you know, one complaint is that, you know, we hand down decisions in the middle of the night. And he says, well, you know, sometimes we have to because we're writing against a deadline, like an impending execution. Well, I mean, that's true sometimes. But in the SB8 case, where the decision came down at 11.58 p.m., um, right? There was no midnight deadline. The court had missed the deadline. The law had been in effect for 23 hours, 
by the time the court decides the case, right? Why at that point are you handing down the ruling at 11.58 p.m. versus 6 p.m. or 10 a.m. the next day? So that's a small example, but it's not, it's one of them. Um, his real point, and, and I don't want to be unfair to his speech, his real point is that, you know, we're not doing anything that is that out of kilter from what the Supreme Court has always done. We're an appellate court. People come to us with emergencies and we react, right? And so, you know, right. don't blame us, right? Blame whoever's creating the emergencies, basically. And again, I think that's where having a full, like, holistic sense of the data set shows the difficulties with that analysis, right? That, like, there's a lot of the court's behavior that really is new, um, right? The, the denominator of applications is not meaningfully higher today than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and so the question is, what are the, you know, you can either do what Justice Alito did, which is dispute the descriptive claim that the court is behaving in ways that are new and different, or you can say, well, they're new and different, but they're justified. Um, but then you have to add, so, but then, right, first, I think the data don't support that nothing's changed. And the justifications, as we've discussed, I think don't really hold up once you apply them, you know, to the whole data set as opposed to individual data points. At least there's a, a an important change in volume or in the amount of these cases or the types of these cases. Well, and frankly, I mean, and, and I actually think that the most um, significant indictment of Justice Alito's speech isn't anything I've said or anyone else on the outside has said. It's that the court's behavior has changed. Um, so just since, you know, September 2021, Joel, we've seen some meaningful signs that the court actually is responding to some of these criticisms. Um, we've seen, for example, the court taking some very high profile disputes and not deciding them on the shadow docket, but kicking them to the merits docket. The court has changed its rules, actually, to provide for more normal procedure in emergency applications in ways that it hadn't before. In the OSHA and CMS vaccine mandate cases last year, the court heard oral argument on emergency applications, something it hadn't done since the 1970s. And there's even a, 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 an opinion by Justice Barrett in an otherwise obscure case from October 2021 about the public health care worker vaccination mandate in the state of Maine, where Barrett says... Um, you know, just because you meet the criteria for emergency relief doesn't mean we're going to grant it, which I think a lot of folks understood as Barrett saying, maybe we've been a little bit too freewheeling and we should pare this back a bit. And we've seen actually, I mean, Joel, so far this term, the court has been a little stingier um, about emergency relief. So so it isn't the, the fact that it's ramping up doesn't mean that it's asymptotic and we're heading towards correct. hundreds of, of shadow docket cases. No, I mean, I think I think we really. I mean, I don't know how the court, like the the October twenty twenty term. I don't know how the court could even handle much more on the shadow docket than it did that term. I mean, that you had the election, you had COVID, you had executions. I mean, you had everything. Um, but I do think that it's pretty revealing that some of the same justices who are publicly criticizing critics of the shadow docket, right? I mean, Brett Kavanaugh, in one opinion, uh, complained about the catchy but worn out rhetoric of the shadow docket are quite obviously privately modifying their behavior um, in ways that it's hard to see as anything other than a response to at least some of these criticisms. Yeah. And you mentioned the rhetoric part or that, you know, some of the criticisms have been about the name that shadow sounds shadowy, or it implies some type of puppeteering or, or some type of shady behavior. Nefariousness. Right. Yeah. What's your answer to that? So first, I think any conversation about the name is a distraction. I mean, we can call it the banana docket, 
um, and I'd still be happy, right? Like, but the question is not what you call it. The question is what's happening on it. But, you know, if we're going to be specific, I mean, shadows are not necessarily pejorative. Shadows are the inevitable result of a light source being blocked by dark, being blocked by objects. And so, <laughs> and so the notion that like the, the shadows are shady and the shadows are sketchy actually to me bakes in an assessment of what's happening there. Um, that like that, that things are happening in these shadows that are actually, um, bad as opposed to just that, like the shadow itself is the problem. And so to me, like it, what it, what it hides is that it's the behavior that matters, not the terminology. And in a sense, this relates to the general perception of the court as being, uh, perhaps less reliable or less neutral than it has been perceived in the past. And Am I right in, in, in characterizing your main critique as being, you know, a, a lack of confidence or a diminishment of confidence in the court? Absolutely. I mean, so, so this to me is, is, I think, a point that gets lost on a lot of the folks who are critical of me, right, which is that I, I am not accusing the justices of bad faith, um, right? I, 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 I don't think this actually is a nefarious plot, um, right, to sort of to seize power from every other institution in American life. But I do think that the fact that there are a large number of people who perceive it as such is a problem, even if it's not, even if that's not true, right? That, that perception is actually a really important part of the story here. And one of the reasons why, Joel, it is historically so important for the Supreme Court to explain itself is because those explanations are the best uh, insulation against charges of partisanship and against charges of indecorous or unbecoming behavior. Um, you know, Amy Cody Barrett made this point last year in a speech at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. She said, listen, don't just read media accounts of our decisions, read the decisions. And whether or not you agree with the bottom lines we reach, decide for yourself if we're partisan hacks or if we're actually serious people with serious principles that just might not be your principles. Um, and to me, this is why, in some respects, the shadow dock is actually perhaps even a larger issue than the contemporary merits docket. Because the shadow docket, there is nothing happening. The, the court is doing nothing on the shadow docket to push back against these kinds of charges, to offer countervailing evidence to those who would say this is just a bunch of politicians in robes in a way that the merits docket actually is sort of inherently responsive. Right. And I, you know, I think some of the critiques um, that have been leveled against particular justices in making decisions where they have a vested interest or where they have a perceived interest uh, would be doubly uh, difficult uh, on the on the shadow docket where you might not even know how they how they came down or you might not be able to examine with the same scrutiny. Well, and 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 you know, it's just it is it is the most unfortunate reality of the data that I marshal in the book that you know, the sort of the justices are homogeneously ideological on the shadow docket to a degree that they're not on the merits docket. They're always sorting themselves into their traditional camps. And Joel, that these cases, and I mean, the election cases are perhaps the most striking illustration of this, have this like horrifying tendency of breaking down where Republicans get relief and Democrats don't um, in contexts where otherwise they look procedurally identical. Um, and there's, you know, my favorite example of this is when the court in 2019, um, sorry, in 2020, um, refused to lift an 11th Circuit stay of an injunction in Florida just to, to cut through all the legalese there. The court refused to block 
Florida's, uh, the Florida's felon disenfranchisement law um, in a context in which the district court had blocked it and the 11th Circuit had unblocked it following the exact procedure the Supreme Court had been yelling about for 10 years, right? So the 11th Circuit had done exactly what the Supreme Court had said for years courts of appeals should not do in election cases. And yet the court leaves the 11th Circuit decision intact in a context where it really hurt Democrats and really helped Republicans and in a context in which in every other example, they intervened. They'd gone the other way. Right. I'd be curious your thoughts, but my my instinct is that you're not saying that this is inherently a Republican or Democratic trait, that Republicans would be more likely to be in favor of more use of the shadow docket and Democrats the contrary, but perhaps an examination of power structures. If you're if you're the party in power or if you're the group in majority and you have access to this additional power lever, well, maybe you're, you're starting to see more and more benefits for it. I, I so appreciate you, you taking us in that direction because I, I think the real moral of the story is not one about partisan politics, but about institutions. And, and that the, to me, the real story of the shadow docket is a story of the Supreme Court as an institution that has become far too um, self-assured of its power and far too immune, right, to sort of intervention from the other branches. I mean, for the first hundred and, you know, 99 years of the Supreme Court's existence, um, it was subject to fairly meaningful congressional interaction when it came to the shape of the court's docket, um, when it came to the size of the court, right? How many seats are on the court? That's up to Congress, as we know. And at least until 1869, it's something Congress regularly varied. Um, the budget, right? How how much the Congress funds the court, um, giving the court its own building. That was up to Congress, right? That there's this rich history, Joel, of this healthy interbranch dynamic where what really helped to keep the, the court as an institution from running too far away from the power that it should exercise was a real fear of political retribution. And that's totally gone. Um, and that's been gone for the better part of 35 years across different administrations, when different parties controlled Congress, right? And so it's not a story of partisan politics. It's a story of how the separation of parties has replaced the separation of powers. And that one of the results has been a Supreme Court that can decide ever fewer cases, that can do ever more on the shadow docket, that doesn't have to worry about ethics codes, right? Like all these things that in this particular moment, Joel, take on a partisan valence because of the composition of the current court's majority, but that aren't inherently partisan in any meaningful respect. They're all institutional. Steve, you've outlined how the shadow docket has, has snowballed a bit, how the, the amount of orders and the types of orders have expanded. Why? You know, <laughs> what's, the, what's the justification? What's the reason? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is the heaviest lift in the book. Um, and, and, I, and I think this is the part I'm, where I'm most interested to see how the sort of the Supreme Court nerds react to the book. Um, so there's no question, Joel, chronologically, when this shift happens, like it happens in the, you know, the mid 2010s, like 2016, 2017 is when you see the spikes in the data. Um, but it's, I think, a little bit too easy to say, oh, well, that's just because Trump comes to office and Kavanaugh replaces Kennedy and Barrett replaces Ginsburg. Like, I think that's part of the story. Um, but the story the book tells is a little bit more nuanced. And the story the book tells is that actually the real pathological shifts that are at the core of some of today's problems 
really happened in the early 1980s. And they happened in response to the Supreme Court's reinstitution in 1976 of the death penalty and the explosion of sort of end stage litigation challenging death sentences that the Supreme Court's intervention precipitated. Because when the Supreme Court brought the death penalty back in 1976, what it brought back was a much more judicialized, much more constitutionalized process that all of a sudden had a, a, a slew of constitutional claims that could only arise late in the litigation and that had to be resolved late in the litigation. And so just, I mean, one data point, Joel, in the October 1960 term, there are four uh, execution-related applications that go to the full Supreme Court. In the October 1983 term, there are 83, um, right? And so the court, in response to this flood, a flood, mind you, uh, somewhat of the court's own making, um, starts changing its procedures. So we start seeing the full court resolving more of these as opposed to individual justices in chambers. We see the court abandoning the practice of in-chambers arguments and in-chambers opinions. We see the court continuing the norm of unsigned and unexplained orders, even in death cases. And so that all actually happens in the early 1980s. It's just, Joel, that from 1981 until really the mid-2010s, that was almost exclusively the purview of death cases. And so this was all happening, but it was happening in the unique context of the death penalty, where it could be chalked up to being just a death is different right. thing. It could be chalked up to being a procedurally unique phenomenon. And it's only really in the mid-2010s, the early Trump administration, once Kavanaugh replaces Kennedy, that what had become the norm for the court's behavior in death cases moves over to become the norm for the court's behavior in other emergency application contexts. And once that happens, like once the blood is in the water, savvy litigants, you know, the Trump administration, Justice Department, red state attorneys general, um, relevant, you know, sort of big repeat players, the Chamber of Commerce, right, realize that like this is now an opportunity to sort of go to to exploit these pathologies. And I think that's what provokes the, the flurry. A new lever of power. Yes, that 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 had that had sort of already been put in place somewhat unintentionally, right, in response to a a real procedural crisis the court faced in the early 1980s. But that sort of was never meant to cover context beyond the uniqueness of the death penalty. Well, maybe now's a good time before we let you go to talk about some possible reform. It sounds like uh, it sounds like you're very much in favor of of congressional reform of the court. Am I characterizing that right? Yes, to a degree. Um, so I am I am I am the weird progressive who doesn't want to destroy the court, um, right? But who wants to save it? And so you know, I, I think congressional reform is really a multifaceted conversation where I am like aggressively in favor of Congress doing anything, uh, right? Like something. Um, because to me, part of the disease here is that Congress has abdicated any meaningful role, right? In an interbranch discussion of, of the role of the Supreme Court. Perhaps the reason there is that there'd be just deep suspicion that whatever Congress was doing was of uh, one political party putting their thumb on the scale. And so then the question is, how do you sort of build back a story of, you know, sort of bipartisan or nonpartisan reforms that are not perceived as an attack on the court? So this is where, for example, I'd love to talk about restoring some of the court's mandatory appellate jurisdiction. 
right? Like, how is it attacking the court to give it more, um, right? Um, talk about sort of finding ways to get some of the cases that have typically provoked emergency intervention, get them to the court faster as plenary appeals, um, where maybe you can find ways in Congress to speed up where these cases are filed, how they're heard. That surprised me. You know, why Why is the court having to decide at 4 a.m. whether or not to stay in execution when usually these executions are, are mapped out weeks or months in advance? So that's a function of doctrines that, that the Supreme Court is responsible for, Joel, but that Congress could change, right? So imagine if Congress says every single person who is subject to an execution warrant gets one direct appeal to the Supreme Court, right? Here's the timeline for that appeal. And hey, states, you can't execute them until that appeal has gone final, right? That would take so much pressure off of these last minute 11th hour applications. It would put the focus on what it should be, which is do these prisoners have meritorious claims versus the suspicion that they're just trying to game the system, right? Um, Congress could do that. Congress could take the rise of nationwide injunctions and instead of banning them, as some have proposed, right, Congress could streamline them and say, we want nationwide injunctions to all go to D.C. or we want them to all be heard by a special three-judge district court with an immediate expedited appeal to the Supreme Court. And that's to avoid kind of this like venue hunting or, or looking for the right judge? Which has the effect of creating these outlier decisions that then get to the Supreme Court on emergency applications. Like, and Joel, I, I don't have all the answers, but like the notion that Supreme Court reform has two features, right? And it's adding seats and adding term limits is not just wrong, it's incredibly counterproductive because there are so many reforms that I actually think, you know, away from the bright lights, folks of all stripes would say, actually, that seems like a pretty good idea. Um, perhaps even the justices themselves, but that, you know, we're, everyone's so suspicious of each other these days that we never get off the, off the starting blocks. Professor Stephen Vladek teaches law at the University of Texas Law School. His new book is called The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Steve, so much fun talking to you. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Joel. This was a lot of fun. The Edge of the Law podcast is brought to you by Talks on Law, a destination for legal education. Enjoy legal explainers by attorney experts, continuing legal education, and interviews with the titans of law. Visit TalksOnLaw.com to learn more.